0: Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, folks, welcome go. to Making Data Simple. I am so glad you're here. I hope this podcast meets with you well. I hope you're COVID free, you're thriving in business, thriving in leadership, and thriving in your personal life. We're going to have some fun today. Our topic today is infusing creativity with data. My guest today is Anastasia Lang, CEO and founder of Creative X. am going to let her describe herself to you in just a moment, but I thought I'd just take the description off her podcast page because I thought it was fantastic. It's marketing organizations have always been divided into two types of teams, creative and data folks. With the increased demand of always-on content and the explosive amount of data, these two categories are starting to get closer together. So Anastasia is going to talk about how the world's best brands are combining these two worlds to create powerful content backed by data. She will debunk the myth that content creation will be taken over by computers and discuss how marketers at Unilever, ABN Pepsi, she's got a, uh, a lot of different customers she's working with, are fusing creativity with data to enhance content effectiveness and efficiency, and ultimately their brands. So look, this is going to be a great discussion. Anastasia, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. I hope you're well. No COVID. I hope you're uh, enjoying the summer, have some vacations, etc. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I have to say I was listening to all your other podcasts, and I feel oh, I, uh, I have real imposter syndrome being here, but thank you for, thank you for having <laughs> me nonetheless.
0: Well, thank you. If you wouldn't mind, please introduce yourself. I like to give you the opportunity to describe yourself the way you would like to be described.
1: Ah, you know, why is that always the the most difficult question? (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Well, you know, I I guess starting from somewhat the beginning. uh, So my name is Anastasia. This is my second company as a founder and CEO. Prior to jumping into the entrepreneurial journey, I spent a little over five years at Google. I worked on essentially every ad tech and analytics product Google had. But what my career path at Google had in common is I always gravitated towards very early stage technology, that didn't really have a precedent or a blueprint. And I, I like to be on teams of people that were figuring out how to do something for the very first time. And I left Google in 2012 because I had that silly itch to decide to you know, strike out for myself. start a company initially in the e-commerce space, which was a complete disaster. But the silver lining of that disaster was it led us to some insights that led to the birth of my second company, Acts arguably more successful, we're almost 50 people now, have raised their Series B, um, have you know validation from some of the largest brands in the world. And I am now in this interesting space of trying to figure out how do you grow a company from you know product market fit to global scale and, and global domination? So that is a little bit of me in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> global domination right here, folks. That's what we're trying <laughs> to do. I like it. So Series B already, huh? How big did you say the company was?
1: So the company's uh, just circling around 50 people at the moment. Uh, We should be hitting 75, 80 by the end of this year. And we are about to raise our Series B. So it's it's an interesting time, although quite an unusual time. Because as a CEO, I find that you constantly have to reinvent yourself. And every new funding round is almost an opportunity to have to think about, what does being good at my job mean today? Because it's no longer what it was yesterday. So it's an interesting time of sort of transition and reevaluation of what does being a good CEO mean now versus what it meant a year ago.
0: How much time do you spend on funding? I always like to ask this question because, well, I'm at IBM, of course, as, as you know, but I got several friends that are in startups and, uh, you know, not to give you the answer, but they spend a hell of a lot of time in in, in driving funding. Do you spend a lot of time in you know.
1: I- I don't. Um, and, and that's probably a problem. (laughs) Your friends are probably doing it right. I guess (laughs) the long and short of it. I've never loved fundraising because I find that it, it sort of biases for, for the wrong things. Um, and I've always preferred being more operational and being more focused on sort of higher level strategic conversations, both internally, as well as with clients. I love to be client facing, but, the way that we've approached my my sometimes reluctance to go out there and spend all my time fundraising is we try and run the company as efficiently as possible, which means that fundraising for us is more of a want rather than a need. And that makes it a little bit easier for us to hold fundraising conversations on our own timelines rather than by the fact that, hey, the company's about to run out of money. We need to spend all of our time fundraising or we're going to go bust. But yeah, the reality is I probably spend – You know, during peak times, 20 to 40% of my time fundraising, but during most times, very, very little. I do spend a fair amount of time keeping in touch with our existing investors, but I wouldn't consider that fundraising.
0: Look, I want to talk about a lot of other things, but when you say it's a want rather than a need, I mean, are you cash flow positive? I mean, are you already set up and ready to go and just, you know, this is great. Where does the company stand today?
1: We try to run the company in a way that it is at break even or approaching break even or can get to break even without massive um, layoffs or anything like that at every given point in time, especially around points in time where we know we're going to be we're going to start thinking about fundraising. Now that's not a very popular opinion, and it, it depends on where in the world you're from and what kind of VCs or investors you're talking to. And, you know, I have been debated on this many, many times over. I think partially I am shaped by my first startup experience, which again was was an e-commerce company that wasn't doing very well. And what became very clear to me is that as an e-commerce business, you know, it's really difficult to sort of ever get off the VC train unless you have massive amounts of transactions taking place. We were an e-commerce company that sold lifestyle goods. Think of us as like a kind of a glorified Etsy. And that got me into the mindset, that experience of being in a place where the company wasn't working, I was responsible for these people's livelihoods and their paychecks. And I had no other option but to essentially beg VCs for money, put me in a frame of mind where I said, I will never let myself be in that position again. Again, there, there's good and bad to that, and I'm happy to kind of cover both sides of it. But now the way we run CreativeX is we have been break even, we have been profitable. After a fundraise, we, of course, kind of go back into the red because we invest heavily into growth, but with a view of getting back to that breakeven profitability place in a very near foreseeable future. So that tends to be how we run the business.
0: Well, so this will be a natural transition then to creative X, what I wanted to talk about, but why do it again? You know, this is painful. I mean, so what makes you say, you know, after you go through that experience to say, look, I'm going to do it right again. Let's start back up. Let's get back on the horse. And, yeah and also
1: go. <laughs> you know it's, it's a really good question and the reality is i think in the tech founder world founders get all this glory and ceos get all this glory and i find that the people that are oftentimes behind the scenes don't which is categorically and terribly unfair and the reason why i say that is because if it were up to me at that point in time when You know, Hatch, the first company, wasn't working. I'd met with over 100 VCs and all of them had said no in sort of every shape and flavor of no that was possible to hear. And then out of nowhere, an investor came to us and said, hey, I think some of the underlying technology that you're building for Hatch is really interesting. And that was what eventually became CreativeX. And we want you to spin this out into a separate company. I was of the mindset that I, I just don't want to do this again. And we were quite lucky, you know, we had some acquisition offers on the table, again, mostly of the Apple hire variety. So I was not going to retire off of this, but at least my entire team would have been taken care of. They would have gotten nice jobs at sort of very big and very, uh, very reputable technology companies. And what we did at that time was I sat down with the whole team and I said, look, whatever we do, we do together, right? We And we were a small team, you know, there are five or six of us. Um, said whatever we do we do together so if we're gonna go we're gonna go take this term sheet to start a company that we've basically been tinkering with on the side i really want all of us to be in but i understand if you're exhausted you don't want to do this you know a term sheet does not mean investment um we had no money in our bank account at this time so the team was virtually about to start working for free and to be truthful at that time i was like oh let's just take one of these acquisition offers and put ourselves out of our misery Mm -hmm. and the team was the one who pulled me through. And, you know, sometimes you pull them up and sometimes they pull you up, but those are not the stories that are often told. So what we actually did is we went into a room and I said, I want you to talk about this freely without feeling like you're going to offend me or hurt my feelings or anything like that. I said, I'm going to step out and I'm going to let you talk about what you want to do. And then when you're ready, I'll come back in and we'll talk about it as a team. And I came back in about, you know, sort of 90 minutes later, they called me back in and they said, look, You know, we can all go work for any of these big tech companies if we wanted to. We really love working together. Some of the stuff we've been doing around creative and data is really interesting. It's actually the most interesting technical problem we've been solving while we've been here. We want to do that. And I said, are you sure? You know, a term sheet again doesn't mean investment. I'm not sure I'll be able to pay you past the next month. And the team said, you know what, don't worry. We trust that this will work out. And if we have to work for free for a month or two, that's okay. So truthfully, were it not for them and were it not for that conversation, I probably would have opted for selling what we had, the, the remnants of Hatch, and going to one of these big tech companies. But they pulled me through.
0: You have an awesome team. I mean, I don't know them. But I do
1: have an awesome team. Yeah, but
0: I, I got you talk about loyalty. I mean, that's like being in the trenches together. Uh, once you get through something like that, I mean, I gotta believe that it's empowering uh, as you start to see success.
1: Absolutely, it's it's so empowering, and it really aligns everyone's incentives. But it, you know, it, there's also there's again this sort of cult and, and myth of the the founder and their superiority, whatever it is. And I've just found that that's, that really hasn't been the case in our team. You know, again, when we were small, we were we were very much like a family. Now that we're bigger, obviously. You know, we can't really call ourselves a family anymore. We're more of, I think, sports team is the typical analogy that gets used. But one of the things that's incredibly empowering is as a result of having these conversations very openly and very directly, we can actually talk about these topics as a unit and as a group rather than having this kind of top-down decision-making process. And I think that's served us really well. Or One of the things I'm proudest of is the fact that while we have team members who work that, you know, Google and Yahoo and Microsoft and all these big companies, X is the place that they've spent the most amount of time in their career. And when things got really tough, you know, people stuck around. And so the, the sort of the flip side of this, right? And again, this is a positive, but this is one of the things that kind of metaphorically keeps me up at night, is now I really want to deliver a win for all of these people because I feel so indebted for everything that they've done. And, you know, but good on them for creating that kind of motivation for me.
0: <laughs> well, is it more pressure now? Is that even possible? I mean, you, you, when you're a CEO, founder, whatever, you're going to have a ton of pressure. Now you've got more pressure because you've got this commitment with such a team. Is, is that possible? I don't know.
1: You know why why it's more pressure now? Bizarrely. So I've been reflecting on this a lot, actually, because when we were a smaller company, as I've been reflecting over the last couple of months, as we've approached 50 people, have been you know having conversations about our B. I've been very nostalgic about the early days, that sort of five to 10 people in an office trying to figure that out. And at that time, it all felt like the end of the world. But actually in retrospect, I look back at that time and I think about how fun it was because fundamentally no one cared about what you did. So we had a lot more freedom to experiment and do stuff and get things wrong. I just didn't appreciate it at that time. The reason why I feel like it's more pressure today is because now we have product market fit. We have real users who use our product and rely on our product on a daily basis it feels like there's an actual opportunity that's ours to lose versus in the beginning you're just trying to figure out if there is an opportunity in the first place and again i wouldn't have necessarily thought about it that way in the early days but i think the bigger the company gets the more you feel like what's at stake if that makes sense and i do feel like that is more pressure than when you're a smaller team
0: i would presume more pressure but uh more reward as well Absolutely. it's like yeah i would have met. so just to be clear is this the early days of creative x or the ending days of hatch
1: time when we decided to not take the aqua hires was and kind of double down on creative x was when hatch was winding down yeah, and that's what. we got this sort of hail mary to start creative x by an investor who saw frankly who saw more than we saw at the time
0: So, and then, so go ahead. So then the the end of my question is might as well finish the story of how creative X gets started, why it gets started. What's your moat? What do you have that others don't have uh, in the space?
1: I'll talk about kind of the first two parts. So the way creative X got started was again, a happy serendipitous accident hatch wasn't working. As I mentioned, and as an e-commerce business, you know, we spent quite a bit of time using imagery and video to convince our customers to come to our website and buy our product. And we were in this place where we had very little money in our bank account. We couldn't compete on all the traditional marketing channels. And we were we basically locked ourselves in the room and tried to figure out, OK, we can't outprice anyone but surely there must be a way to outsmart what people are doing. Mm -hmm. And we started thinking about if we can understand imagery and video better, because we noticed that was such a big part of our conversion funnel and our marketing funnel, then surely there's a way to be more efficient here. So what we started doing initially in a spreadsheet was we took a bunch of images and videos we were using for marketing purposes, we put them in a spreadsheet and we started thinking about binary questions we could answer about those images or videos, as in, Is there a person in this image? You know, yes, no, or zero one or one zero. Is there um, a product in this image? Is the woman smiling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we would go through and manually input this data next to all the images we had in the spreadsheet. And then we would take that, that visual data that we manually created, and we combined it with performance data. So clicks, conversions, views, et cetera, et cetera. And we would try to look for patterns with, what was inside the creative and what seemed to be actually working and lo and behold these very weird patterns started to emerge Um, the kinds of things that you would probably sound crazy saying in a meeting but yet we were seeing there was a real relationship between the things we were using uh, the, the creative attributes we were featuring in our content and the way our consumers were responding so we started making decisions based on that data decisions around the kind of content we should show to different people the kinds of images we should choose and the kind of images we should put money behind. And we started to see an improvement, not only in our conversion and our overall unit economics. So for an e-commerce site that was relatively low price point, we were able to get to profitable unit economics after the customer's very first purchase, which is no small feat for an e-commerce business. And so basically on the back off that we were able to sort of have it not completely sink into the ground. And so we use that to go out and to say, hey, look, we were here and then we did this and we got here and, and you should give us more money to kind of scale this out. The majority of investors basically said, look, we're just not interested in e-commerce. And a couple of them took a much deeper look at how we were doing, uh, how we were kind of driving this upwards curve and growth, looked a little bit more into it and said, hey, we think that's the business opportunity, not the e-commerce site. but sort of the methodology behind it. And they, you know, it took them pointing it out for us to think about, oh my gosh, this is a much bigger business, right? And of course, having had one startup that uh, was on the brink of failure at that time, we went out and before we signed any term sheet, we actually talked to a number of customers. I basically tried to find any CMO or senior marketer that I knew and said, hey, here's some technology we're we're tinkering with. Uh, Is this interesting? And what had happened, which was fascinating, is Basically, everyone we spoke to sort of said, hey, can we sign up for your beta? And we're like, we don't even have a company name, let alone a beta. But it gave us enough validation to know that there was something here, which is when we decided to, uh, again, pushed by, pushed by a nice investor when we decided to go out and basically pivot and refocus our team from building an e-commerce site to building creative analytics technology.
0: Do you consider your business a, a marketing business or I mean, how would you label it? What, what category is it in?
1: You know, uh, it's, it's an impossible question to answer. I think fundamentally, we think of this as a technology and a data business. Uh, the initial application of this is in marketing because marketers are some of the biggest users of image data, right? Uh, fundamentally, they're using imagery and video to convince their consumers to remember, purchase, engage with their product or their brand. However, you can imagine other applications of this technology in a different way. Some of the ones that I think about a lot that I would love to do at some point, and they're sort of on our longer term roadmap, is how do you use visual data to make better personal decisions? So what I mean by that is you know, online dating, right? Online dating today is entirely a visual game. Yet what we believe about us and what our pictures say about us tend to be two very different things. So I could say, hey, I love the outdoors and sports and all of that in my profile or description but all my photos are me you know drinking at a pub or drinking at a bar there is a, a, a virtual disconnect between <laughs> what I think I'm saying the message I'm actually sending to people who might be interested in me same thing goes for you know job seeking so linkedin right uh, you know anyone who applies for a job one of the first things we do is we go like look, look at their linkedin profile and you know, I, I'm amazed at how many people don't think about the sort of the headshot they use or the profile picture they use when they're in a job seeking environment. So you're looking for a sales job, but you don't smile in your photo. You know, and again, maybe it doesn't matter, but maybe it does, right? So we're really interested about other ways where in other areas where you can apply this technology. But for now, we focus on the marketing use case because we want to get one thing right before we sort of scale out to others.
0: So let me see if I can get this straight. Very this is fascinating, actually. I mean, I, I love this. So you, you went from an e-commerce business, so to speak. And th- this is kind of like the story of Slack or something. You know, Slack was actually <laughs> yeah. born out of a gaming company, Tiny Spec. Like they always say, you throw up the dartboard, you throw the dart on the wall, and then you put the dartboard where the dart went. So yeah. in other words, you change your business to where you grow. So you started out an e-commerce business. Now you're kind of a tech and data business looking for patterns, marketing, whatever you call it, to identify trends that people can't see with the naked eye.
1: That's right, and and we're trying to think about how do we bring a layer of objectivity to something that has been traditionally very subjective. And that started with this question around, you know, what is it about my content that is likely to lead to success, that has been proven to work, and how do I recognize those patterns at scale? The problem here is when you look at the world of you know visual communication, uh, if you kind of go back five, 10 years, you know, most marketers were creating, I don't know, a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand of pieces of image and, and video content. You look at it today, and I mean it's hundreds of thousands. So most of the companies that we're working with, their visual output was tripling to quintupling year over year. And you end up getting to huge numbers of, of content that's being produced. The problem with this is how do you maintain creative quality? How do you maintain brand consistency when you're thinking about content at that scale? You simply can't do it without technology at this point, right? And what ends up happening is, you know, while a lot of marketing has been uh, kind of datafied, right, where we now have applied analytics and, and data to most parts of the marketing funnel, creative has sat on this other end where it's still been very much a question of, you know, we like this or we don't like this uh, or we think this will work or it won't work or people are simply evaluating creative incorrectly you would be surprised how often we hear people say hey this one creative performed better than this other creative therefore it must be this thing in that creative that's working and we're like well first of all that's not a statistically representative sample you know you're talking about one versus (laughs) one secondly if if those creatives were exactly the same except for one variable maybe you could draw that inference but you know it's kind of like that, that famous example that Optimizely, uh, you know, one of the big A-B testing companies popularized where they talked about uh, Obama's fundraising page. And I remember this very clearly because they said, hey, this landing page for Obama's campaign drove significantly more donations. And everyone inferred a different thing as to what it was about that page that worked. When you compare the two, one was black and white, one was color one had michelle one didn't one had the kids one didn't one obama was smiling one he was serious and so yes one performed better than the other but not only is it not representative but we actually have no idea why and i think trying to figure out how do we objectively understand that why has been a conversation that we were trying to have with marketers around the world
0: look i think this is fascinating if your tech is marketing or identifying the proper marketing in terms of who we are versus who we think we are, you're probably onto something and you're going to make a ton of money. You're going to become the next Slack at like $30 billion here pretty soon. So good for you. <laughs> I would like to lift up the hood a bit. So talk about your technology behind it, if you would, on Creative X. Is it all about imaging? I mean, is that where you're focusing? Is that your sweet spot? Is that your moat? What technology? Are you using AI in that way? Just tell me how you're using technology.
1: What we try and do is create the greatest set of metadata associated with imagery and video. Obviously, video is more complex than imagery because you have to go frame by frame by frame. It also has audio, which is a different component. So we broadly think of the creative as a unit. And our job initially is to gather you know, a, an all-encompassing set of visual metadata that we can then use to not only uh, objectively understand what's happening in that creative compare to every other creative that you're putting out there, but really start to use that data to help you influence how you think about you know, consumer communication. So some of the technologies we use, you know, we started out just using computer vision and basically image and video recognition. So this was really focused on object detection and parsing objects from the content. We then moved into focusing on text detection and using things like optical character recognition, to pull out any text in the asset and and parsing that out as well. When we moved into video, we started trying to look at the audio file as another stream of data. So you've got sort of the combination of the visual, the text and the audio all working together. And then the the thing that we did on top of this is we started thinking about how do we move beyond object detection into more concept or thematic detection. So we built technology on our end that allows us to take all of this data and structure into thematic buckets to help measure broader themes and concepts rather than just objects. So, you know, for example, if you're a beverage company like Pepsi, us telling you that a bottle versus a can works better or differently is not going to fundamentally change your business because you're going to keep making soda that goes in cans. Um, But us thinking about, Do shots that are product-led versus people-led make a difference to how, you know, users on Facebook respond to your content or how they think about interacting with your brand? That makes a big difference, right? And it not only makes a difference from a performance point of view, it makes a difference from a branding point of view. So if you're trying to humanize your brand, if you're trying to show that you're inclusive in your messaging and you're inclusive in how you think about, you know, your audience all these things start to make a big difference. And so I think a lot of the, and I don't necessarily want to call it a secret sauce, but a lot of our our ability to go so deep with the brand that we work with has been in our ability to structure things at a higher level rather than relying on what pretty much all the other computer vision companies do, which is object detection.
0: Is all this tech built in house or is it integrated technology or is it a little bit of both?
1: It's a bit of both. So the way that we think about it is, You know, as a startup, you have limited resources and and limited time before you have to get to certain milestones. So the way that we've approached it is anything that is proven and already sort of relatively commoditized, we will just bring in. And then we will focus our technology building efforts on things that are a really specific to the marketing use case. So, you know, for example, if you look at existing computer vision systems out there, you know, they're really good at recognizing dog versus cat but they might not be as good at recognizing, you know, again, th- this is a branded image versus not a branded image. And so we, we think about how do we apply our limited resources on things that aren't heavily commoditized at this point, And then also on the technology to fuse all these different elements together for richer detection and analysis.
0: Nice. Who is your target customer? And if that target customer is listening right now, what's your like two minute pitch?
1: Our target customer or the brands who have gravitated to us tend to be Fortune 500 global brands. They have multiple brands and products. They have multiple markets that they're live in. Um, Oftentimes, they rely not only on internal creative partners, but also external agencies and production partners to make all the content that they do. And fundamentally, imagery and video is a big part of how they get their value across to their customers, right? So they tend to be visual first, if you think about it. So what I mean by that is, if you know, if you're a company that maybe is in the finance space, then yes, you're using imagery and video, but probably that, that may not be the, the way that people make decisions about whether to use your product or service, if you're someone whose brand really is an asset on their balance sheet, chances are you're using imagery and video to to make those decisions. And if I had to talk to a CMO of one of these big brands, what I would say is twofold. First of all, I would ask them, I like to use the Socratic method whenever I talk to <laughs> folks. Um, right. so I would ask them, you know, what percentage of their marketing currently relies on visual content? The Answer, we hear, when we ask this question, by the way, people tend to look at us like we're morons and have been living under a rock, but we ask this question very explicitly. Uh, usually what most people say is anywhere from 90 to 100% of their content is visual. And then we'll ask them what analytics they have for understanding that content. And the reality is none. That's sort of what we try to bridge together. And the way we position CreativeX is we wanna help you streamline and power your creative decision-making process through technology and at scale. With the goal of increasing consistency, efficiency, and effectiveness of all the visual content you produce and put money behind.
0: Is it discovery, though? In other words, identifying, when you say efficiency, am I going to find that, hey, look, this ad that I have out here is just worthless. I thought it was providing the, the information I need, but if I combine it with these other images, I can drive my, uh, my hits, my, my web visits like tenfold.
1: It's less about an individual image and more about thinking, let's say um, we were working with a company and one of the things we identify is, you know, they have the, these best practices that have been proven to drive marketing performance, whether through A-B tests, through our system, they figure out, hey, you know, we always have to have the logo and the creative and the product has to be shown in the first three seconds because we know that leads to better outcomes. When we talk about efficiency, one of the things our system actually points out is how much content you're creating that doesn't adhere to these things, that uh, who is responsible for that, which agencies, which markets, which brands are actually producing the most content and spending the most money on content that's never likely to be successful. We do the same thing for brand consistency. So you would be amazed at how many marketers would be unable to identify their ad if you stripped the logo out of it which means that again for these uh-huh. big fortune 500 brands they are fundamentally missing creating assets that are consistent with their brand you know like coca-cola for example does this really well but if you look at their branding they are so fanatical about staying true to their to their brand guidelines as it were their shade of red is so distinctive there's been experiments on the psychology experiments on kind of memory and stuff like that, where all you have to do is show people the shade of the Coca-Cola red without any other identifying information and people will know it's Coca-Cola. I mean, that is powerful branding right there. So our system can also says those things, how branded or unbranded is your content and how much money are you spending on content that people won't remember or won't be able to tie to your brand. And that's how we generally think about efficiency.
0: Look, I'm not a marketing expert like you, but the interesting thing, you explained a lot to me in the last like five minutes. There's been several times where I've done this or that, and the IBM branding has come back to me and said, no, you can't do this. It has to be this way and this way only. I mean, and and we are really... Uh, strenuous about using the right uh, logo, same color, etc. So I get that. But is that like a litmus test for you? I mean, taking, I thought that's very interesting, at least for somebody that's not a marketing person, you take away the logo from the whole page or from the whole uh, ad, whatever you want to call it. And if their clients can still identify who that's representing, is that something that's common in the marketing space? Is that something you do with your technology to prove and help sell a use case?
1: We don't do that yet with the way that we're thinking about it is we're thinking about the right level of brand consistency that drives the optimal outcome. So when we have a customer who's using our brand consistency product, the way that we think about it is basically take their brand book. So let's say we take IBM's brand book and you know there's their logo, there's their color palette, there might be a tagline, there might be a sonic identity, there might be all these other elements that the teams have kind of you know been annoying with you about to say, look, you must do these five things we would automate those. And then we would try and figure out what is the ideal threshold of branding that leads to the optimal uh, creative outcome uh, as measured by, you know, again, any of the KPIs that we're looking at, whether it's digital KPIs like click-throughs, conversions, views, or macro KPIs like brand lift or brand recall. The goal here is we don't wanna be prescriptive and we don't wanna take away from creative expression or from the creative process. But we do want to help elevate it so that everyone's operating on the same foundation of information. And so what that means is, you know, ideally, the conversation you would have with your brand teams is like, look, here are 10 different brand assets that we have. As long as you use four of them, we're happy, but you can figure out which ones are the right four for you to use in this instance. Because we don't want to go through places. It's like, um, you know, uh, kind of a paint by number type situation. Where your entire creative is pre-prescribed based on data, I think that that won't work. Um, and we've seen terrible examples of when you you let AI make a piece of content, and it's it's really not all that great. So human insight and human direction, we think, will never go away. But we think about how do we create a canvas in which that creative expression has the best likelihood of thriving, and that's thinking about you know some degree of uh, constraints, which will yield the best outcome.
0: Are there other competitors doing this today?
1: There are a lot of folks now thinking about visual data. And that's another thing that's really changed over the last few years was when we started and we went into all these meetings, by the way, it was a blessing and a curse, but we basically got kind of kicked around an organization be like, Hey, you should talk to these nerds. They're like, they're doing some cool stuff, but no one wanted to buy our product because they didn't know what it was. The industry has come a really long way since then. so. There are a lot of folks doing stuff in in visual. Um, I think they tend to mostly fall into the camp of, you know, computer vision or visual labeling as a service. So whether it's, you know, um, even things like Watson, right, or the things like um, Google Vision, Clarify, et cetera. I think if you're gravitating towards those, it's really a build versus buy decision where you can get some underlying tag data, but you will have to build your own sort of systems on top of it to make that data go from from noise to signal, uh, which is a lot of where we've tried to spend our time. Does that answer your question?
0: No, it does answer my my question. I like it. Why do you think the interaction of creatives and data is so relevant right now?
1: Because we live in a visual world. I mean, and to some extent, you could say maybe that was always true, but it's never been true at the scale that it's true now. Three to five X, content proliferation year on year, visual proliferation year over year, as well as a constant stream of new platforms, which require not only creating more content, but creating different content for different platforms. So before there was a healthy element of reuse and recycle that we could apply. But now, you know, you've got Facebook, you've got Instagram, we've got YouTube, you've got TikTok, you've got Snapchat, you've got Pinterest. All (laughs) of them have completely different rules of engagement. So you have to... Take each piece of content and create unique ones. You know, it's both kind of a scale problem and a personalization problem all in one. And we're sort of in a place where if you're creating more than a couple of thousands of creatives a year, you need technology. Otherwise, you're spending people's time doing very manual road tasks that technology should do for them.
0: As we summarize this, uh, this is all great information, by the way, Anastasia, I have I could probably go on forever because I, I always, I like to ask questions. That's why I started a podcast, but any customer stories that you'd like to share in terms of wrapping up how they've used the technology and benefited from the, uh, you know, what you've provided here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we recently had a couple of, of case studies come out. Um, Heineken is a great example of a partner that we worked with, we we worked with them and Facebook together, we looked at about 190 different campaigns that they ran So this amount of 2000s of different creatives. We looked for about um, 10 or 15 different attributes in the content itself, we ended up tying that to performance data and finding that using four of these elements drove a consistent and statistical impact on their bottom line, so they were actually able to map this all the way down to revenue data and brand data. And then what Heineken did as a result is they actually used our system to implement the adoption of these creative elements into the creative production process. So now every creative that's made for Heineken goes to our system first, validates its meeting they're kind of statistically proven and validated creative elements that drive revenue before that content can get shipped out and they have you know we we can't share any data publicly but they have confirmed that this has had a measurable impact on their bottom line and on their marketing effectiveness because they've basically been able to create their own canvas for marketing performance teams still have a tremendous amount of freedom But they now know, hey, if we do these four things, my message actually has a chance of being seen and being heard.
0: Yeah, That's a great example. Great example. This has been very informational. It's fantastic. By the way, Anastasia, you're so well-spoken. I don't see you having any problem selling to any VCs when you need to. And the technology, I have to say, look, I don't know how many other technology competitors are out there, but look, you've sold me and it's a perfect use case for artificial intelligence as well. I gotta believe you, uh, could you say just a couple of words on that? Are you using artificial intelligence? I gotta believe that's part of the image recognition, right?
1: We're we're a lot more clever uh, about how we take all the data that we have and you asked earlier about the moat. You know, I think part of the moat over time starts to be the fact that we sit on this very, very rich bank of visual data that we've been using to not only refine and learn and streamline our algorithms and our processes, um, and the interesting thing about this is because we have our pre-flight tools that allow content to be assessed before it goes live, we're actually seeing a lot more content than, e- than even what's publicly available today, which makes you know the ability to build better AI all the more kind of likely and certain if that can ever be the case with building AI. But certainly our data sets has started to become a differentiator and a mode.
0: This is fantastic as I said. Anything that that we left unsaid that you want to make sure is said?
1: Well, I think if there are any any founders or prospective founders listening, <laughs> all I would say is if you have a company that's failing, don't despair, it could be the beginning of an upcoming success.
0: Well, you should have like it was $7,000, right? That yeah. that's <laughs> 7,000. That should be some somewhere in I don't know your uh I don't know your motivational speeches or whatever. Seven thousand is is the word. You were down. Yeah, to 7, I have the
1: exact. Uh, you know, I have the exact number somewhere. I think it was like seven thousand four hundred eighty-three dollars and seventeen cents. And now that. We're starting to get bigger offices. Maybe we need to name a conference room after that, just to remind people of the scarcity we went through.
0: Or, or start a foundation or something. It's the 7,000 <laughs> foundation, whatever it is you've got. See, now you can use that uh, as motivation, right?
1: That is a great idea. I will, I will definitely do that. That's a great idea.
0: Terrific. Uh, I'm glad that you made that pivot. And sometimes, I mean, that makes you appreciate what you have you know, one way or another. And I look, think your team, the way you've described them are amazing. And I got to believe that you're going to be successful. I mean, they're in it to to win it one way or another, because they've been through that. You guys have been through hell together. It's like Winston Churchill says, if you're going through hell, just, just keep going.
1: (laughs) Yes. And if we are successful, and maybe this is the last thing to say is, if we are successful, it will largely be because of them. And so if any of them are listening, uh, I hope they know how grateful I am to be on this journey with all of them.
0: <laughs> Definitely the right mindset. Hey, where can folks reach you?
1: Best way to reach me: I'm an inbox zero person, so I do check and read all my emails. Uh, Anastasia at creativex.com and LinkedIn. I think it's LinkedIn. Stroke my stroke. A L E N G. Uh, so also check on my LinkedIn messages.
0: All right, terrific. Hey, before we break, I got to play a little game with you. You you oh, welcome. Gosh. I mean, I, as I'm listening, I got a couple of questions. Uh, it's would you rather I'm sure you've played would you rather before at some point in time with somebody. So you got to pick one side or the other. And because I I put some of this together as I was listening. And so I've got a few would you rather questions. Okay. You game? Let's do it. All right. Corporate or startup. Startup. Google or your own company. All right. Startup. You already, (laughs) that was quick. See how quick this is books or movies. So print or visual. Print. So print. All right. So books. Hey, but you just went against your image stuff.
1: <laughs> I know. I'm a big reader. I'm a big, big reader. No, no, The that's way I good. relax as I, I read books.
0: <laughs> exactly why I asked the question. No, they're all good. Beer or wine? Wine. Wine. Hopefully nobody from Heineken is listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> and and finally, Coke or Pepsi?
1: Uh Water.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, very. Wh- what did you say at the very end? Now I forget. I had one more too, and now I lost my train of thought as you were finishing. Oh, no, that was a good one too. Oh, inbox of zero. I actually have a, a goal. I've got this daily goals that I have. I've got an inbox of zero goal, and it's hell for me. How do you do that?
1: Um, I haven't been able to hit it for a long time, but I, It's never, or it's rarely more than one page. So inbox zero for me has not been possible for, I mean, years, but (laughs) I never have, basically my levels of stress depend on how many, uh, unanswered emails are in my inbox. Um, and typically what I find is at any given point in time, I'm between 10 and 20, which is normal. Once it gets to two pages, that means something is fundamentally wrong. Either we need to hire more people. I'm spending my time on the wrong things. I'm a bottleneck for the teams or something else, but you know, actually achieving zero has a, is an elusive goal.
0: <laughs> at least it's a goal. I feel better. We have the same goal. Thank you for being on this podcast. You have been fantastic. We could go on forever. That's a sign of a great guest. I appreciate <laughs> you being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. Thank you. And, and to all the listeners, thank you. As always, please rate us on your favorite location to listen to your podcast and hit me on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We always want to hear what you have to say.
1: Until next time, let's go over and out.